Hello and welcome to Paul Martin's Catholic Podcast. I'm Paul Martin. I used to be a Presbyterian, then Pentecostal lay preacher. After studying the Bible and church history afresh, I converted to Catholicism in December 2017. And I'm talking today about the ideology of communism, as well as communist mass killings. I'm someone who is very much socialistic in most of my beliefs and views of the economy, but I'm vehemently anti-communist. A good book to read is written by Courtois et al. It's a 1999 book called The Black Book of Communism. It's by Harvard University Press. It has 800 and 58 pages and I have a copy of it. It's a very very good resource where most of my information comes from and During the 1980s when I was a little boy I lived with the fear as people had for decades past of a nuclear war with the Soviet Union and communist China I saw how communists were spreading their terror and civil wars across the globe and how they ruled over about a third of the planet, two of the largest nations on earth, China with the biggest population and the Soviet Union with the biggest land size. And I remember saying to my dad about 1988, saying, what if communism takes over the world? And my dad said to me, Communism is crumbling. I said, really? He said, yes, the people are up in rebellion against it all the time. And I remember staying up late at night, watching the news, seeing the massive protests all over Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union rising up against communism, and they overthrew it. The Berlin Wall was broken down in 1989. China was about to go that way at Tiananmen Square in 1999 and it was crushed tragically. But what is communism and do they have any validity? Well, it was started by Karl Marx, a 19th century man. He was a bit of a crank. He spent most of his life in a library just reading books and he wrote a short booklet called The Communist Manifesto and he wrote a larger and much more drier book called Das Kapital. And there's a meme that makes the rounds on the internet and it says he never ran a company, never held office, he didn't work for most of his life and he survived off Friedrich Engels, the son of a wealthy factory owner and all his political economic theories ended in complete failure. Now I saw a communist co trying to correct this meme and saying, oh well it's irrelevant if he never held office or he never ran a company or if he lived off the capitalist uh, expenditures of Friedrich Engels. But here's the thing, the fact is Karl Marx if he was going to have an ideology that would influence one 
third of the world and then would end in complete and utter failure and brought nothing but mass death then it is relevant and he was in no position to tell the world about what what to do economically but he did play into the desire the idealistic desire that many people have and communism essentially taught racial equality gender equality no class system full equality equal pay an economic utopia a workers paradise happiness that actually sounds pretty good on paper and rousing up people in miserable 19th century factories and early 20th century factories this surely must have had an incredible appeal um, and the reality of communism was nothing like that because human beings by nature are motivated by incentives and human beings by nature are lazy if they're allowed to be and so the reality of communism was a low motivation to work and produce totalitarian regimes mass killings invasions and state-sponsored terrorism they had razor wire fences with machine gun armed guards to shoot anyone trying to escape the workers paradise and as for racial equality they had racial genocide stalin for example in the 1940s against the baltic states had about one third of the population expelled to siberia and about one quarter of the population died um, that he had ethnic groups like the Kalmyks uh, expelled from the from the Caspian Sea to Siberia during the Second World War because he thought these Asiatic Buddhist people were pro-Nazi. Uh, he had the Poles and the Germans ethnically cleansed from areas of their historic homelands so that they'd be pushed westward um, and then russia could gain land from them and as for no class system they set up themselves as an elite ruling class of comrades oppressing their fellow comrades so it brought about utter misery and there was the old joke in capitalism man exploits man in communism we do the opposite and that's the reality in many countries that were extreme capitalist they had uh, exploitation of the workers and then the communists took over with the promise of a workers paradise and just made themselves the new elite over the people the question we have to ask is have the elite really oppressed the poor the answer is yes often they have not always not always intentionally or malevolently sometimes incidentally the elite and wealthy people of the western world have also 
helped the poor more often than not. The, the real key is development, and development is the key. The elite people in the Western world have always had a love for luxury, and that is precisely why we, not just the elite, but the population in general, has so many comforts today. A lot of the comforts were made for the rich people, but then capitalists made them affordable to the average person. So, I remember as a young kid, we used to carry these horrible, huge suitcases around the place for travelling. And then in the late 1980s, early 1990s, I started to see lots and lots and lots of people walking around with suitcases with wheels on them, which made it a lot more comfortable and easy to do. And eventually, as more and more people wanted it and the elite wanted to make more money, they started selling them cheaply and affordably to the poor. We live in an age where people in the early 21st century, in the developed world, I won't say so much for the third world, but in the developed world, even the poorest people have arguably more comfort and convenience than kings and queens had in the early 20th century. We have TV. Often even the poorest people will have a television. And if they have an internet connection, they have an endless supply of entertainment and comfort and connections. But in communism, they brought nothing but utter misery and arrested development. A couple of films that are good to watch. One is a movie called The Czechist. That's C-H-E-K-I-S-T. It's a Russian film, a 1992 film. And I've got a copy with English subtitles and it's the mass slaughter and murder of dissidents by the Soviet Union. Another good one is a 2007 film called Katyn, K-A-T-Y-N, and it's about the 1940 massacre of the Polish commanding officers of the military. It was blamed on the Nazis, but they found out eventually that it was actually the Soviet Union that did this atrocity. And the Soviets even admitted it in the 1980s, Mikhail Gorbachev did. And by 1975, people thought communism would take over the world. They saw how they took over Russia. And then after World War II, thanks to communist fifth columnists in America and active work by Stalin, the communists just managed to win in China and Chiang Kai-shek had to flee to the island of Taiwan. Chiang Kai-shek, unfortunately, had a, a, a reputation for being a very, very corrupt individual. And so the communists ended up winning in China and then they fought a ferociously long and protracted war in Vietnam and a short war in Korea where they, they 
it was a stalemate in Korea, and still is unfortunately, and they had victory in Vietnam. That is, the West defeated, won the Vietnam War in 1973 when Richard Nixon got tough on the communists and he temporarily ended the Cold War by being tough. And the Soviets and the Chinese uh, talked with him. But two years later, after he'd been driven out of the White House, the North Vietnamese invaded the South and conquered it. And in 1975, it looked like world victory for communism and people had a fear of what was called the domino effect, that bit by bit they'd start taking over the whole world. And it led to horrific atrocities in Indonesia where under Sukarno they armed the Indonesian public with machetes and weapons and they went and slaughtered anyone who was communist or socialist or in any way associated with communism. And the atrocities they committed were, were disgraceful and terrible. But 1975 also really marked the beginning of the end of communist hegemony, even though it didn't look like it at the time. Even in 1987, nobody could have predicted that a mere two years later, it would have crumbled around most of the world. But it led to the collapse of Pol Pot's regime where the Vietnamese invaded Cambodia and there was a Sino-Vietnamese war, a war between China and Vietnam, a stalemate in 1979 and Vietnam invaded and occupied Cambodia from 1978 to 1989 and then the Americans went in and armed the Khmer Rouge and help them fight the Vietnamese. So they got their revenge for the Vietnam War. And that same uh, time, 1979 to 89, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan and they ended up suffering terribly as America armed the Mujahideen. And so what happened was Communism collapsed under the massive dissatisfaction. And to this day, there are only five communist countries in the world. They are China. China is officially communist, but economically it is not because it failed. There's Cuba, which suffers from widespread poverty. And there's North Korea, which has widespread starvation. The average family in North Korea gets about one chicken per month as the amount of meat they have for the whole month. And there's also Laos and Vietnam. I remember once reading a heartbreaking story about a Catholic priest in Vietnam who suffered 10 years in solitary confinement. An extremely cruel punishment, but the Lord sustained him. In Courtois et al, in their book, they list on page four that it was roughly a hundred 
million people that were killed. Now, these, some of these numbers are smaller than what is generally agreed to, so they could have killed well over 100 million. But they claim it was over 20 million in the Soviet Union from 1918 to 92. Uh, and this was either deliberately killed or due to economic mismanagement. Under Mao Zedong, under China, it was over 60 million people died. And the total of those killed in China may have been as high as over 80 million. The Korean War from 1950 to 53, it was two to three million civilians killed and hundreds of thousands of soldiers killed. The Vietnam War, which was from roughly 1955 to 1975, led to the deaths of anything from 1.3 million to 4.2 million. So we may never know the precise numbers, but it was in the millions. Cambodia under Pol Pot. It was called Democratic Kampuchea. That was from 1975 to 79. 1.5 to 2 million Cambodians died of starvation, execution, disease or overwork. That was nearly a quarter of Cambodia's population, which in 1975 was 7.8 million. And that was in a, a period of three years and eight months. And then there was the Angolan Civil War from 1975 to 2002, which led to the deaths of half a million civilians and over 18,000 soldiers, well, well over 18,000, and many unaccounted for. There was also the Mozambican Civil War from 1977 to 92, and that was over a million that were killed in it. And there were many landmines left there. There was also Afghanistan, where about, from 1979 to 89, it was about 1.5 million were killed. And in and Yugoslavia, under communist rule from 1990, sorry, 1945 to 91, and the bulk of that time they were ruled by the sole dictator Tito, it was about 1.1 million who died. So it was well over 100 million deaths in the 20th century. And many of the atrocities committed by the fascists were largely caused by the fear of communism, or they were a reaction to communist terror, or a power struggle against communists. So this is not to excuse the atrocities of the fascists, but to realise that the main motivation was a fear of communism. Nazi Germany, Hitler was elected in 1933 because largely and in part because of the fear of a communist takeover of the country. They had a brief communist takeover after World War I, and the German military came and overthrew that coup. And then they saw all around them countries being uh, taken over by these revolutionaries, and it made people panic. It made people grab their guns and vote for a tough leader. Spain, a traditional Catholic country, 
had a communist takeover where they wanted to obliterate the church. And so General Francisco Franco led a civil war against the communists in the 1930s and he ended up ruling from 1936 to 1975 because the Spanish people, a coalition of Catholics, fascists, nationalists, monarchists, and some people were a mixture of all the above, got together, put aside their petty differences and fought ferociously and they smashed communism. There was also apartheid South Africa, which was from 1948 to 1994, officially, but it was really 1990 that it ended, uh, for all practical purposes. They released Nelson Mandela from prison and began negotiations with the ANC and the plans for free democratic elections to change from white minority to black majority rule. And why did it happen in 1990? Because communism had been discredited. Communism had been exposed as a complete and utter failure. And another brutal dictator was Pinochet, Augusto Pinochet, in Chile, who ruled from 1973 until 1990. And he resigned after he corresponded with Pope John Paul II, who urged him to resign. And so he did so. Well, I'm going to read an article. The Catholic Register at catholicregister.org and the article is called John Paul II's Influence Key to Fall of Communism written by Francis Rocker Catholic News Service dated April the 26th 2014 Vatican City Catholics venerate blessed John Paul II he's now Saint John Paul II but Catholics venerate Blessed John Paul II for His Holiness, as demonstrated, among other ways, by his globe-trotting evangelism and long-suffering endurance in the papacy despite his illness. For secular historians, however, none of the late Pope's accomplishments looms larger than his role in the end of the Cold War and the fall of Soviet Communism. Blessed John Paul's opposition to totalitarianism grew out of his devotion to the idea of God-given human rights. As a father of the Second Vatican Council, then Archbishop Karol Waltier of Krakow was a key supporter of the 1965 Declaration on Religious Freedom, Dignitatis Humanae, probably mispronounced that, which affirmed that the right to religious freedom has its foundation in the very dignity of the human person, as this dignity is known through the revealed word of God and by reason itself. During the 1970s, a period of increasing ferment in Poland 
marked by major strikes to protest the communist government's economic failures, then Cardinal Waltier became a well-known champion of human rights for all Poles. It cannot happen that one group of men, one social group, however well-deserving, should impose on the whole people an ideology and opinion contrary to the will of the majority, he said in a 1976 homily. After his 1978 election to the papacy, Blessed John Paul modified Pope Paul VI's policy of Ostpolitik, whereby the Vatican sought to foster better relations with Soviet bloc countries in the hope of improving conditions for Catholic churches there. The new Pope kept open the channels of dialogue while pressing communist regimes to comply with international agreements on human rights. In June 1979, less than nine months after becoming Pope, Blessed John Paul visited his native land, where he spoke to crowds totalling 13 million and publicly called for political self-determination for Poland's citizens and formation of its own culture and civilization. The next year, nationwide strikes forced the Polish government to raise wages, loosen censorship, and permit the formation of an independent labor union, Solidarity. Blessed John Paul was a major inspiration for this non-violent movement. Lech Walesa, a Solidarity leader and later president of Poland, signed the accords ending those strikes with a pen bearing the Pope's picture. The alarm of Polish officials and Soviet leaders at the Pope's influence in that period has been well documented in books published since the end of the Cold War. When a Turkish gunman nearly succeeded in killing Blessed John Paul in May 1981, many observers suspected a Soviet connection. That link has never been proven, but Cardinal Stanislaw Czwitz, the late Pope's secretary, wrote in 2009 that Blessed John Paul himself believed Moscow was behind the assassination attempt. Don't all roads, however disparate they are, lead to the KGB, Zizwitz wrote. Blessed John Paul's second visit to Poland in June 1983 came after the Polish government imposed martial law to suppress the democracy movement. The Pope met with General Wojciech Jaroszlewski, and called on other countries to lift economic sanctions against the military regime. But he also publicly championed independent trade unions as a mouthpiece for the struggle for social justice, and insisted on meeting with Walesa, who was still in custody. Martial law was lifted the next month. Over the following years, the Pope continued to encourage the democracy movement with weekly radio addresses in Polish. 
1989 against a backdrop ground of liberalising moves by Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, the Polish government agreed to roundtable negotiations with representatives of Solidarity and the Catholic Church. Walesa later wrote that the idea for the negotiations came from Blessed John Paul. As a result of those talks, elections in June 1989 led to the formation of a new Polish government led by a non-communist Prime Minister. Within a few months, the Berlin Wall was down and communist regimes had fallen in Czechoslovakia and Romania. The drive for independence by other Soviet bloc states and Soviet republics finally led to the end of the USSR in 1991. Everything that happened in Eastern Europe in these last years, Gorbachev wrote in 1992, would have been impossible without the presence of this Pope and without the important role, including the political role, that he played on the world stage. And here ends the article. What I notice and I find very interesting is that Cardinal Waltier, Pope John Paul II, was the first non-Italian Pope in centuries. And I wonder, had he been an Italian or a West European, would he have had that impact and that inspiration with the Polish people? Maybe not. And that may have been the very reason why the Lord led the church to elect a Polish Pope so that he could instigate a peaceful revolution in his own homeland, a devout Catholic nation under communist oppression. That's my speculation. And in 1917, let's not remember the free Portuguese children at Fatima were told to pray for Russia and that uh, great evil was looming for Russia. And their prayers were answered with the collapse of communism, where they turned away from that godless, atheistic ideology. So what's the alternative to communism? Well, I believe moderate socialism. There needs to be a free economy but not to the point that people do massive amounts of work for very little pay, while other people do little amounts of work and get a lot more pay. South Africa is an example of that, and I've done a podcast on South Africa. It's the world's most unequal nation, where often white-collar workers earn five times as much as blue-collar workers. And a lot of people live in mud huts or shanty towns. And they work 70, 80 hours a week just to put food on the table and get by and have clothes to wear. While other people live very well on the exploitation of those people. I believe there needs to be a balance between communism and exploitative extreme capitalism. 
And I believe communism only succeeded because of the widespread misery of blue-collar workers and few workers' rights in the early 20th century. In the 20th century, dramatic changes for workers' rights occurred in the Western world, and it led to greater health, wealth and happiness, and it's likely the reason that communism failed in the West, but it succeeded in the East. And it used to be that workers in the in the Western world, blue-collar workers, had to work 12 hours a day, while white-collar workers would do eight hours. And the white-collar workers vehemently and bitterly opposed blue-collar workers having better rights and more reasonable working hours. And it was the trade unions who stood up and fought that. And I believe the greatest threat economically to the world is not communism. Communism collapsed. It was discredited. There's a few university crackpots who still believe in it. But the biggest economic threat is an uncompassionate extreme form of capitalism. There are people in many of the conservative elements of politics who want to get rid of all forms of welfare. They want to get rid of all forms of helping the poor. It's a very cruel, harsh kind of way of doing things. Ronald Reagan was a lot like that. He helped stir up a panic and fear of universal health care, thinking it would lead to communism and the end of America and some nonsense like that. I mean, Reagan had his good points. He was a courageous man who stood up to the Ayatollah Khomeini, although he did do under-the-table deals with him, and he spoke tough against communism, but he was also a huge disappointment to the poor working-class people of America. And he helped some fascist regimes in Central America, and he was quite corrupt. And we, there is an element of people in society that want to get rid of all our rights and people to work harder and harder for less money. And we have to stop it in its tracks. And as our society gets more and more developed with robots doing a lot of our work, people should be doing less work for as much pay or more pay in the future. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this educational and informative. Take care.